the Talking Race podcast from the Centre for Race, Education and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University. Welcome back to the Talking Race podcast. In this episode of Talking Race, we'll focus on racism and critical race theory with Professor David Gilborn. We'll be defining white supremacy, exploring how systemic racism lives inside your house, highlight flaws within the educational system in Britain, and discuss how the Stephen Lawrence inquiry shamed Britain. David Gilborn is Professor of Critical Race Studies at the University of Birmingham in England. He is Editor-in-Chief of the journal Race, Ethnicity and Education. He's Director of Research in the School of Education and was the founding director of the Centre for Research in Race and Education at Birmingham University. He's now the deputy director of that centre. David's research focuses on race inequalities in education, especially the role of racism as a changing and complex characteristic of the system. He's written six books and more than 140 refereed articles, chapters and reports range from original studies in classrooms with teachers through to national reviews of research evidence in the field to analyses of changing policy landscapes internationally. Thank you so much for giving up your time for this podcast. We really appreciate it. And as an expert in critical race theory, uh, we wondered if you could outline what it actually is? Well, I mean, CRT as a a named approach really started in the 70s and 80s in in American law schools. It's it's developed rapidly since the mid-90s. It moved into education in the mid-90s and from the early 2000s has really taken off outside the States. It's really becoming a, a kind of global model which i think is is really exciting like all approaches there are some people who take it very seriously and look into the history and there are others who use it as a kind of fashionable tagline basically crt boils down i think to a to a series of of approaches which get beneath the surface of racism so it concerns itself with racism as a kind of fundamental aspect of how society is ordered and operates on a daily basis. So CRT talks about white supremacy, not as the kind of obvious racist posturing of, of neo-Nazi groups, but white supremacy as, as that absolutely fundamental fabric for societies like the UK, for Europe. Uh, Australia, the US, where the interests and the assumptions of white people are just assumed to be the normal. They're not viewed as a as the particular kind of sectional interest. The way that white people view the world is the normal way to view the world. And if you query that approach or you're seen to challenge the interests of white people, you face severe consequences. So I think that view of racism as an everyday, powerful, defining feature of society is one of the core aspects of CRT. 
Perhaps a curveball question that I'm going to throw in here, and it's okay. that some scholars and academics out there have actually suggested that CRT is not necessarily a theory. What's yeah. your take on that? Well, I have to hold my hands up and apologise here. So I was one of the first people outside of the States writing about CRT, and I produced a paper around about 2005, 2006, where I, I made the mistake of saying it's not a theory, it's a perspective. And I was very wrong, and I regret it. And I see that line trotted out so frequently. And what I meant when I said it was that it was, it was a way of understanding the world that wasn't precious. It was about making a difference. It wasn't... In, in the academy, theory is used as a weapon. Theory is a word that is used to denote that somebody is cleverer than somebody else. My theory is bigger and better and more complicated than your theory. So when I was starting out um, in my academic career, I come from a, a working class background. I was the first person in my family to even stay in education beyond the legal requirement, let alone the first to go to university. And so the story that I discovered was doing the rounds at the Institute of Education was that Dave Gilborn is a good ethnographer. He works hard, but he doesn't do theory. And what that meant was, I work hard, but I'm not very clever. So, um, so I always viewed theory as this thing that is used against you. But actually, so now it's very ironic that I'm, I'm linked with something called critical race theory. And I was educated on this by one of the best critical race theorists, a guy called Dave Stovall, who, when I was writing a book called Racism in Education, I sent chapters to various colleagues to comment on. And I sent him the chapter that tried to explain to people what CRT was. And Dave absolutely pulled me up on this line that CRT is not a theory and said, it's really important that we recognise it is a theory. It's just as much a theory as anything else that gets that term. And we mustn't be afraid to use it. That's an important word. And um, we have to fight for it. Um, and I did more reading around as I was writing the book. And I found... Um, there's a paper by Kimberly Crenshaw that describes the kind of origins of, of CRT. And she talks about how she came up with critical race theory as a name. So they were putting together the first kind of dedicated symposium on CRT. And she was scribbling terms on a, on a pad to denote what the work was that they were doing. And she argues that it was critical because it was getting beneath the surface. It was challenging power. Race, because it was unapologetically about race. And they were, even at that point, trying to be closed down by people who were saying, race is too crude, it's really about class, it's really about gender, it's really about lots of other things. And theory. And theory was there because they were facing objections from people at Stanford and other US universities who were saying that talking about race was crude that you needed to be more sophisticated. And so right from the very beginning, the use of the word theory was a political act. It was saying we are just as clever, just as important, just as sophisticated as anybody else. And I didn't get that when I wrote that first paper, but Dave 
educated me and I completely get it now. And it's really important because CRT not only offers you a way of understanding the past, it also actually predicts the future. So, you know, I, I, I wrote a paper way back at the beginning of the financial crisis in 2007 saying, well, everything that we know about how crises operate, they always hit minoritized communities. They hit them first, they hit them hardest, and they hit them the longest. And that has proven to be absolutely accurate about the financial crisis, and it's absolutely accurate about the COVID pandemic. These things are not coincidental, and CRT explains why they happen, why they continue to happen, and predicts how they will happen in future situations. So I am, as you can tell from my elevated voice, (laughs) I am now really passionately of the view that CRT is absolutely a theory like any other. All theory starts somewhere. So, you know, I've never heard someone say, well, you know, Foucault had some good ideas, but it's a French thing, isn't it? That, that, that bloke with the beard, Marx, he had some interesting observations, but it really only works in, in Germany. So, you know, no. Just because something started in the States, people have taken it up, as I've already said, they've worked with it globally. And we're not stupid. We take the ideas and we look at how it maps onto what we're doing and what we're seeing. And sometimes we change the theories in different ways. So CRT in the UK has developed in some interestingly different ways. So when people say that, you know, we're, we're just taking an idea from the States and, and kind of imposing it, it shows that, first of all, they have a very low opinion of us, which is, which is usually pretty clear. But also it shows that they're incredibly lazy because if they actually read any CRT from the States, from Australia from South America, they'd realised that these are different versions of the same overarching theory. We use some of the same concepts, but we use them in different situations and sometimes in different ways. And I think one of the exciting things for critical race theory is how it continues to develop now that there are people around the world feeding in different ideas. Well, that was a, a concrete response to, to that question. And like Vinny said, that does kind of encompass the follow-up question we had. This question is around systemic racism. This is a phrase that we're hearing quite commonly now. Whereas before it was possibly around individualised forms of racism that we see perpetuated through media discourse. And for yeah. those out there who are perhaps unfamiliar or new to this term, how would you define or describe what systemic racism is? Well, I mean, systemic racism is, um, for me, that, that racism that saturates normality. So it saturates the economy, the health service, the criminal justice service, education. It saturates the world. I was about to say, once you've left your home, racism is everywhere, but actually it's inside your home as well. It's in, it's in the programmes that you watch on TV, the things you listen to on radio. It's in most of the books on most people's shelves. It operates at every point of the education system. And it operates through how white people, who are usually the people in charge of the system, it operates through how they view very basic assumptions about 
Who are the clever kids? What does, what does ability look like in a classroom? What does a clever five-year-old look like? What does a disruptive five-year-old look like? How do you tell the difference between someone who's bored and someone who's challenging? And those, those assumptions sound simplistic, but they're absolutely vital at every stage of education, every stage of the health service. And the idea of it being systemic is, is not that there's someone at the top directing it. It's actually worse than that because it's written through the fundamental assumptions that white people learn from, from their earliest days and becomes natural to them. So policymakers don't have to sit in Whitehall and decide how will we make this education policy make things worse for black kids and better for white middle-class kids. They don't have to think that because, on average, all policies will do that automatically. If you don't set out to make a policy anti-racist, it will tend to be racist in its consequences because the people making the policy and the people enacting the policy at every level will embody those same racialized and racist processes in their decision-making. So I think one of the constant dangers is that the, the we fall into a, a, um, a kind of competition. Well, is it individuals or is it systemic? So, you know, I remember the, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. A violent racist attack that was over in 20 seconds. Almost 20 years on, a jury at the Old Bailey deliver their verdict. After two police inquiries, a public inquiry and the McPherson report, Stephen Lawrence's murder remained unsolved. Which, for a very brief moment in time, seemed to have destroyed the idea that racism was just a few rotten apples, the kind of rotten apple theory of racism. There's just a few bad police officers. It's a few nasty old white teachers. And once we've got them out of the system, everything's going to be great. The Lawrence Inquiry opened people's eyes to the fact that, no, the racism inhabits the whole institution, the institution of education, the institution of the criminal justice system. But then... Literally, within a few months of that inquiry, we had the Home Secretary at the time saying, well, this idea of institutional racism, it's not the institution, is it? It's the people within it. And, and it sets up again this, this false dichotomy between, well, is it people or is it the institution? Well, it's all of them. <laughs> it's the institution. It's the rules. It's the way people get promoted. And it's the people making those decisions. Because... Racism infects the whole system. It structures the system. If you think about what does systemic racism look like in education, it looks like if you people talk about the kind of pipeline of, of people kind of leaking from the educational pipeline as they move through. I've been doing some work with colleagues where we talk more about roadblocks because it's not an accident. Students in certain groups don't leak out of the system. They're actually channeled in a different direction. And then when they take that route, they find it leads them to a worse qualification or they find that actually they can't, they can't do the career they wanted to do because that's not open to people that took that road, even though they were advised to take that road. So if you imagine a, a five-year-old 
black child goes to school, they're probably immediately being put onto different kinds of worksheets. Five and six-year-olds are often separated on different tables in class. And some of the tables are viewed as being clever and they're given high-quality tasks. And some of the tables are, are more simple and they take things slow. So even as you're moving through primary school, those gaps are getting bigger. And black kids, we know from the research, are more likely to be on those low-ranked tables. They're more likely to be viewed as disciplinary threats and much less likely to be viewed as the clever kids, the academic kids, the ones that need stretching. So those gaps get bigger as they move through primary school. They move into secondary school where they're probably in different sets, different lessons for different, uh, different classes for different lessons, where again, the black child is more likely to be on the low ranks. They're going to cover less of the curriculum. They're more likely to have a less experienced teacher. They're more likely to get in trouble. Even if they do the same thing as a white kid, we know from research they're more likely to be penalised. They're more likely to be given a fixed-term exclusion. They're more likely to be given a permanent exclusion. Even if they get to the end of secondary school, they're less likely to be taking GCSEs in the high tier, where you can get the highest-ranked passes, which you need for A-levels. But even if they do that, they go on and do A-levels, a lot of black kids are channeled towards the low-status vocational. But even if they book that trend and they do the academic route, they get the A-levels that they need, despite all of that 11 years of racism that I've just described. They then apply to university. They're less likely to be accepted for elite universities than a white kid with the same qualifications. Even if they get into the elite university, they're then less likely to get a top-ranked degree. They went to the same university with the same qualifications. Even within the university, these same processes apply. They're less likely to get a first-class degree. And even if they do get a first-class degree, they're then less likely to get an equivalent job to a white person with the same degree because the racism is sitting there in the labour market as well. So that is systemic racism. It's not one or two bad individuals. It's the whole system and the vast majority of the individuals within the system who are enacting that racism on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute um, basis. What an answer. <laughs> I'm sorry I went on a bit but it, it but it's that cumulative weight we 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 did some work with with black middle class parents and we particularly focused on middle class parents because we wanted to explode this idea that it's all about class and not race and so these were parents with good degrees good wages some of them you know doctors university lecturers professors head teachers so they, they know how systems work, but almost to a man and a woman were saying it's incredible how teachers look at our children and just assume they're not going to achieve. Just these, these low expectations and the cumulative weight. We wrote a paper about it and, and looked at the, um, the kind of disciplinary issues, and particularly for black boys. And one of the parents says, you know, it's like they're trying to destroy his spirit. This, this is, you know somebody like a 10 or 11 year old and and just at every point 
it's it's like they're trying to destroy him. And the, the teachers, I'm sure, are, are, are well-intentioned and just don't see what they're doing to the children on a systematic basis. One of the issues that's come up as a result of the pandemic is obviously youngsters haven't been in school and teachers are going to predict the grades of youngsters who are taking GCSEs and A-levels. And the off-call guidance that was sent out to teachers talked very briefly about unconscious bias. I just wondered what your thoughts were on unconscious bias, but also the whole situation of the predicted grades for particularly children of colour. The idea of using teachers' predictions is really bad news. We pretty much know that that will mean that they're systematically predicted lower grades than they were probably capable of getting. And we know that during the pandemic, they will have been, on average, less well-served than their white counterparts. And and I I don't mean less well-served than their white middle-class counterparts, I mean less well-served than their white counterparts, regardless of social class. Because one of the key arguments that's distorted education policy for the last 10 years or more is the idea that the underachieving group in education are white working-class kids. And I can address that separately if you want me to. I've spent the last decade trying to point out that that is a lie, um, but to no avail, because we've just been told that the latest investigation into race inequality will include a concern with white working class children so that's that's astonishing so i think yeah i I think the the use of of predictor grades will be yet another example of, of black children in particular being systematically underestimated some minoritized groups will do better out of it we know that that teachers tend to view chinese students as kind of naturally gifted, particularly in in science and technology subjects. So for some minoritized students, the the predictions will actually be good news. But for for black students, for Bangladeshi students, for Pakistani students, I think that will be really bad news. And what are your thoughts on unconscious bias? Well, unconscious bias may well have started out with good intentions, but I fear that it's gone the same way as talk about ethnocentrism. When when I started out, there was in the the 80s with my research, there was a lot of arguments between multiculturalists and Mm anti-racists. And the argument was always that anti-racists were so negative, we were so nasty. And if only we'd we'd tone it down a bit and use words like multiculturalism and, and show some positive images, that things would change. Uh, and that turned out to be, as we, we knew at the time, rubbish. Mm. It's just a nice way of saying, can you be quiet, please? And I fear that in the same way that, you know, well, let's use the word ethnocentrism, because everybody's ethnocentric and it won't get people's backs up in the way that talking about racism does. But actually nothing happened because the argument then becomes, well, if everybody's ethnocentric, there's nothing we can do about it. Implicit bias has become this kind of nice, polite way of saying, oh, some people kind of have views of other people that might be a bit negative. Let's let's do something about that. 
but it has no edge. It has no understanding about history. It has no understanding, no concept of power. Mm-hmm. It's not about whether we all like some things and dislike others. These things are about power. And unconscious bias has become a polite way of kind of having a coded conversation that's supposed to cover racism, but also supposed to cover gender and gender assignment, gender identity and and disability and everything else you want to throw in there. And I, I saw some I saw some training just before lockdown where where they had a quote for unconscious bias and it talked about these are the automatic assumptions that human beings make. And there's nothing automatic about it. It's not it's not in our DNA. It's stuff that we learn mm. and we have to unlearn it and we have to challenge it. And, and that's often a really painful conversation. And it is about power and it is going to make white people feel threatened. And it's going to be really testing for institutions because the much easier thing is for an institution to pretend to do something. Mm. We'll put on some unconscious bias training. We'll gather some statistics We'll have a meeting where where white people get um, a bit defensive and some of them might cry. And then we'll all hold hands at the end and we'll say, we'll have a picture of Barack Obama and a, and a big red heart and the word hope. And then we'll all go off and feel a lot better. And then in 10 years, we'll have to find another way of doing the same thing because all of those inequalities are still there. And some of them have got worse because we all went on that unconscious bias training. So... You know, we didn't have to challenge why Why are we looking at a selection panel that's all white people? Why are all the kids going to Oxbridge still disproportionately white? Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on? So I have quite a jaundiced view of unconscious bias training. I think even when it's well-intentioned, it quite often dodges the real question. And the real question is about how some people benefit from these inequalities. Yeah. Just a, another question which has sort of occurred to me is this podcast is for people who in the general public may not understand what racism is. So, you know, when I was an anti-racist in the 80s and got asked at conferences, are you a multiculturalist or are you an anti-racist? You know, you ha- we had to find camps, as you said. Um, it was very clear that racism equals power plus prejudice. What are your reflections on that now? Does that still hold today? I, I, I actually don't like the, um, that particular kind of slogan um, because I think racism is, is more complex than that. And I don't think that anti-racism does itself any favours when, for the sake of moving an argument on, it it pretends that racism isn't as powerful and as complex as it is. And and I changed my views on this when I was doing research with anti-racist schools. And I I was working in one school that had kind of faced this head on with, you know, with white kids going, oh, yeah, but can't I be the victim of racism? Mm. And the difference between a school where the anti-racism had really collapsed and one where it had flourished was that in the school, the successful anti-racist school, the teachers hadn't said, no, you can't be a victim of racism, you're a white person. 
they'd said, well, let's talk about it. Let's, let's talk about a situation where a white person might feel that they're the victim of racism. And they talked about it and they came up with situations where, you know, uh, one of them was uh, a white kid being victimised on the playground for, for no other reason than they were white. And the teachers were saying, well, in that moment, that person doesn't have power. They are a victim. And we, we, can, we can agree that in that particular example, OK, yeah, you're the victim of a racist assault. That's terrible. But it's bloody rare. Um, the vast majority of victims of racist assaults are not white people. So if you are in that situation... We have to make sure that you can use all of the same processes that we're putting in place for everyone else. But we have to acknowledge that the chances of white kids using these processes are really slim. But we also have to acknowledge that maybe they will use them. Maybe there are situations where white people can be victims of racism. But we mustn't let that, that tiny fraction overshadow everything take the centre stage, or perversely become the, the kind of critical case that is used to destroy anti-racism for everyone else. Anti-racism is much bigger than that. We can, we can do anti-racism bigger than just turning around to white people uh, and saying, no, 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 this is not for you. Because I think the anti-racist cause is one that everyone can sign up for. Um, it's not... Um, necessarily something which is going to damage white people. It's going to damage white racist interests and white racist power. But if you don't want, a white, want to be the white person that benefits from white racism, you're going to have to face up to that. And, you know, it, it might mean that you're less likely to get a promotion. It might mean, it should mean, that you're teaching in a school that doesn't have as many white people on the staff that you're, you're working in a university, you're a student in a university that has a much more diverse cohort, and that will change the nature of the university. And that's a good thing. It will make it a better university. It will be more vibrant. It will be more challenging. You'll be doing better work. That's great. That's, that's a good thing. So losing the bits of, of whiteness that are embedded in white racism is not a challenge unless you actually quite like benefiting from white racism. Part of the problem is that a lot of white people don't understand just how much we do benefit from racism. Following the murder of George Floyd, we've seen outrage and uprising spread across the globe and Black Lives Matter has gained real momentum. But police brutality towards people of colour is something that has been around for centuries. Why do you think then that this latest death has captured people's attention, not just in the States, but across the globe? I think there are, there are several factors that come together. One is that the murder was filmed. It's so slow. There's, there's a, a famous phrase about the kind of mundane nature of evil. 
the look on the officer's face as he looks at the crowd and keeps looking down is astonishing because it's tremendously, sickeningly violent, but it's over such a protracted period. I think that's part of it. I think also the fact that it comes after so many other murders of black people that have been videoed. And in the past, these things would have been written off as one person's word against another. The police officer says this. But when you've got the film, when you can see it happening, you can hear the man pleading for his life. And you see the the disgusting inhumanity of the officer murdering him. Um, that's That's something else. I think coming at the time of the COVID pandemic and the absolute brutal reality that black people are dying at at three, four, five times the rate of white people. COVID-19 has done is to emphasise the existing health inequalities in the country. We need to address those inequalities, whether they're to do with deprivation or to do with people's um, people's background. I think that is also important in understanding the, the, the momentum at the moment. But I don't think anything has been won yet, that nothing is certain in terms of change. One of the, 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 the kind of classic concepts that's very often misunderstood in critical race theory is, is Derek Bell's notion of interest convergence. So the idea that you only get progress for race equality when it's actually in the interests of white people. And a lot of people misunderstand that to mean, oh, so you have to have a conversation with white people and get them to understand they'll benefit. That's not what Bell meant. Bell was talking about situations where actually white power holders realise that if they don't do something, they could lose a lot more. So they're, they're not deciding to be a bit less racist because... Their eyes have been opened. I did an analysis of the the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. You can see that at every stage, the system tried to not have a Stephen Lawrence inquiry. It wasn't going to happen. It was just another black youth who died. And then there was a convergence of forces. You had the inquiry. And then the inquiry findings were incredibly damning. The Lawrences have been failed by the police, who, despite compelling evidence, chose not to arrest the suspects until two weeks after their son's murder. They believe the failure to seize evidence is the sole reason why none of the suspects has ever been convicted. And you had newspaper headlines the next day from newspapers that would ordinarily side with the police. And the headlines were saying, you know, shame, the case that shames the British police, the case that shames Britain. And so then Tony Blair stands up in Parliament and says, this is a moment where the nation changes. We are shamed about the murder of this black youth, the racism throughout the investigation, the way that his life has been just just treated as less than by, by multiple police officers and different police forces, and we will change society. And they changed the law and it looked like, you know, the world is going to be a more anti-racist place. And then nothing happened. And there's a there's a CRT idea linked to this called contradiction closing cases. And what that means is that you'll have a case where the story that the nation tells of itself, that where 
we're one Britain, we're united, we throw our arms around everyone. If you work hard, you do well. Something will happen that blows that apart. Like George Floyd's murder blows apart the idea that, well, you know, if you weren't doing something wrong, nothing would have happened. You know, the police officer had to use force. It was a split second. Oh, no, actually, look, it's nearly nine minutes. It's really slow. There's no threat to any of the officers. But the guy is still murdered. So that presents a massive contradiction to the story the nation tells about itself. So that contradiction has to be closed. So after the Lawrence inquiry, the contradiction, our laws serve everyone. Oh, we've got an inquiry that shows that they don't. After George Floyd's murder, the police serve everyone. Oh, no, they don't. They murder people in cold blood. That contradiction has to be closed. But it's usually closed in a kind of superficial way. So we'll have an inquiry. We'll talk about reform. We'll have lots of meetings. I mean, in the UK, following Lawrence, they changed the law. You know, the law became really anti-racist. Every single school and university had to publish a policy to say, was there race inequality in its staffing, in its student achievement? And what were they going to do about it? And within three years, all of that had fallen into, into disrepair. Ofsted in 2000, required every one of their registered inspectors to go on a training course where they read the Lawrence Inquiry and they read research about racism in schools. Now, the only reference to race in the Ofsted inspection framework is as an optional extra that inspectors can look at if they really want to, but they don't have to. And we know from research on school inspections that inspectors don't like to talk about race because it's seen as political it's seen as aggressive uh, if a school is doing well overall in its in its exam results best to stay away from race and if you raise race as an issue be ready for the school to come back be ready for pressure from the organization to say do you really want to go there and most Ofsted inspectors are white people who don't feel competent to talk about race I was at a meeting in, in, in Westminster in about 2002 where Jack Straw said, isn't it great that out of the tragedy of Lawrence, we've moved anti-racism forward? And he said, I remember when, you, if, if you described a school as anti-racist, it was a big deal. Now every school is anti-racist. And here we are, 20 years later, most schools are not anti-racist. They've never been anti-racist. And school policy from the top down is, is focused on white working class children. That's how the system works. It is a, a monumental moment globally where race equality is, is at the centre and is, is the focus, but it will be stolen away incredibly quickly if we don't make people accountable. If it just becomes about slogans and badges on people's lapels, nothing will change. If you had the power to be able to make change then, in terms of our schools, um, say the attainment gap or even within our universities, it's a sort of magic wand type question. How can we begin to seize this moment to make some kind of lasting change? 
um, particularly in our schools and universities? Well, I, I think it's not rocket science. The, it's about priorities. So one of the things that was suggested after the, the Lawrence inquiry was equality impact assessments for every single policy that before you enact the policy, you look at all of the available data to say, how is this policy likely to impact different ethnic groups? And if you find that some groups are likely to be negatively impacted, you change the policy or you find a different policy. Now, that actually is massively radical if it had ever been used. It hasn't been used. Policies are implemented on the back of what the government thinks is a good idea, and that's usually structured by particular interest groups that feed into political parties. Um, So if we're really interested in changing levels of exclusion from school, levels of achievement, we can do it. And I'm not being, you know, pie-in-the-sky romantic here. We know we can do it because we've done it in the past. So when the Blair government said we're excluding too many kids from school, exclusions came down by about a third. And the group that benefited most from that was black Caribbean kids because they were massively over-excluded. Their rate of exclusion came down dramatically, more than any other group. And I think that's because when schools had to limit the amount of exclusions they made, the kids that that weren't excluded so often were the ones that really weren't doing anything terrible. Most kids that are excluded aren't excluded for dealing drugs or attacking pupils or threatening teachers. They're excluded for something that's categorised officially as other. It's an amorphous kind of in the eye of the beholder. I didn't like his attitude. Oh, I, I thought he was being threatening. And when the pressure was on to get down exclusions, black exclusions came down faster than anybody's because that was the group where a lot of kids were getting excluded for things that weren't really excludable offences. But the moment that the government said, hey, this is going really well, let's not set any more targets, partially we now know because they were under pressure from head teachers to let them exclude The moment the government took the pressure off, the numbers went back up. So we know we can get exclusions down if it's a political priority. Similarly, we know that we can get achievement up. My first job in a university was in the late 80s. I I got a job at Sheffield University. And I, I went from a sociology department to an education department. And at that point, the government was saying we need more kids to get five higher grade passes. And people were saying, wow, well, we're never going to get this up by much. This is crazy. At that point, a school that was getting 10%, an inner city school getting 10% higher grade passes was doing well. If someone had popped out of a time machine from the future and said, oh, no, actually, in the future, you're going to have to get 50% through. Otherwise, you're going to face being shut down. No one would have believed it was possible. But that's what happened. And it didn't happen because the government tried to change the hearts and minds of teachers. The government didn't do big courses about changing their view of ability and achievement. The government just said, you're going to get more kids through five A's to C, or we're going to shut you down. And so schools reacted. 
Unfortunately, schools reacted by throwing all of their resources at the kids they thought could achieve. So that was largely Chinese kids, Indian kids, and white kids from middle-class backgrounds. So the pressure raised the overall level of achievement, but it widened inequalities of achievement. So we know that we can change those things, but we also know that we have to be specific about where race is concerned. It's no good saying, well, um, we want to raise achievement for all, because actually what happens is we don't raise achievement for all. We raise achievement for those groups that are already doing better. So um, we already know lots of ways of raising achievement. We need to make the people responsible for schools, for the education system, for universities. We need to make them accountable. So vice-chancellors of universities, they need to either lose their jobs or not get their pay rise if they haven't done something about closing the BME awarding gap. Simple as that. What, what are your thoughts on the changing the curriculum in schools? Will that have any impact on achievement? Well, I mean, in, in one of the very first papers to look at applying critical race theory to education, because CRT started in the law, at the beginning people were saying, oh, that's really interesting, but what would it mean for schools? And Gloria Ladson-Billings wrote this great paper where she said, well, (laughs) virtually everything would change. It would mean who are the teachers, how are the teachers trained, how are they assessed, how are kids assessed, what's in the curriculum, How are schools led? How are schools held accountable? What are they held accountable for? It will change everything. Uh, So the curriculum, I I think, is a huge part of it. What we learn or don't learn. I was in that group of kids that were the, the first year of comprehensive education. We didn't learn about the slave trade. We didn't learn about the contribution of different groups to the Second World War. We learned about the Romans. And we learned about technology that was it we didn't even learn about the civil war they didn't tell us that that actually there'd been a revolution in england and we cut the king's head off no that won't mention i didn't know about that till a film came out about cromwell you know the level of political education in england is absolutely abysmal the debates at the moment around statues and well well we need the statue we can't we can't airbrush the past the past is always getting airbrushed and, and, you know, bringing down a statue of a slaver isn't to erase it, it's to acknowledge what it really was. The curriculum is hugely important, what it covers, the different, the different voices that it features, and being honest about power and the abuses of power in the past. I think, you know, it's been really interesting to watch the, um, the shock on people's faces when, when they found out that, um, oh, Churchill... What, what, Churchill was responsible for what? Cromwell. Cromwell did what in Ireland? Yeah, you know, these are human beings and, you know, they're fated for having done something good at one point. Man, did they do something bad at other points. And that kind of complexity is really useful to understand. You know, let's get away from this idea that there there are good people and there are bad people. There are complicated people. Let's understand that. But... I don't think the curriculum is the only answer. And so you go back to those debates about multiculturalism and anti-racism. The, mul- the multicultural approach would be, well, we'll, 
we'll put some positive images in the curriculum. We'll we'll have a picture of a, a of a girl in in national costume, and that often just made things worse because it just exoticized people. It, it was not realistic, and it certainly wasn't. It, it didn't have any understanding of power and oppression. So I, th- I think the curriculum is a part of it, but so too is assessment. Who does the assessment? How is the assessment designed? And what is its role within the wider system? Virtually everything you can think of as an element of the education system, there will be a way in which racist stereotypes are playing out in that system. And if you don't consciously set out to identify that and stop it, that racism will continue. The usual life of the school is racism. Is there anything else that you would like to add that we've not specifically covered within this podcast? That idea that racism is fluid and complicated and always has an answer. Because uh, particularly white people, when they think of racism, they think of Nazi thugs. They think of something that's horrible, vicious, distasteful and really obvious. They don't think about business as usual. One of the things that I use very early on in most teaching around critical race theory is a chapter by Derek Bell called The Rules of Racial Standing. And it's absolutely genius. Identifies how we are judged on the basis of two things, basically. How we're viewed racially. Are we part of the dominant group? Are we minoritized? And how we speak and how we act. Are we defending the racist status quo or are we challenging it and we will be viewed on the basis of that he talks he says you know it's remarkable actually that more minoritized people don't take the side of white power because they are promoted rapidly beyond all expertise and experience and you see that you saw that in 60s america you see it in 2020 in the uk minoritized people who will speak on behalf of whiteness and white power are given superstar standing, whereas minoritized people who name the reality, who name white racism, are likely to be written off as special pleading. They're looking for favours. So I think, yeah, my parting word is don't fall into that idea of thinking racism is that simple monolithic thing. It's not that racism is tremendously complicated. It will grab hold of your arguments and colonize them and use your words quicker than you can realize. So that's why racism, anti-racism is never done. No matter how great the anti-racist school, no matter how great the university course, we're never done because the racism will always adapt. Vinny and I would like to say thanks again to David Gilborn for joining us on Talking Race. We'd also like to use this opportunity to flag up some of David's excellent work and we particularly recommend reading his 2008 book, Racism and Education, Coincidence or Conspiracy. And, as David notes, please check out Derek Bell's work, The Five Rules of Racial Standing. Other key authors include Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, Gloria Ladson-Billings, Kevin Hilton and Patricia Williams. In our next episode, Emily Zobel-Marshall 
will be stepping into the hot seat as guest host. Emily will be joined by Darren Chetty and Lisa Stevenson as they explore race and children's literature.